and uh, I taught in a in a uh, in a uh, resort that's on the west coast of uh, Costa Rica, overlooking the ocean. Really beautiful. Uh, uh, where I was invited to teach by Omega Institute. Omega usually. Uh, Omega is located in upstate New York, and when I teach for them, usually it's there in upstate New York where they have a fairly large campus. And they rent a particular facility in Costa Rica for four weeks in the wintertime, and people go down. And uh, it's a little bit different format from usual because um, uh, rather than give a retreat all day long, people are there really on a holiday. So you teach a two-hour class once a day. And people can come to your class one day and someone else's class the next day and someone else's class the next day. It's called a sampler of Omega. And it's interesting because uh, I enjoyed it very much. It, it, it asked of me that I think of another way to pre present the same thing every day so that everybody who came four times had a different experience. And, but nobody had to, had to be there every day, but could be there every day. So I had a very good time. And I thought about, I started to make notes about what I had learned and how it would be a Dharma lesson. And the Dharma lesson that it seemed to me to really relate to is the lesson of uh, where are we going with this? And I, I, I would position it in the uh, Eightfold Path. But if I think about the Eightfold Path, I'm sure that many of you, most of you, know that the Eightfold Path is the Buddha's description of ways to practice in life so that uh, one's mind becomes so clear of confusion that at all times uh, it's possible to see clearly what's happening. And in response to seeing what's happening, seeing the truth of how things are, not only for me and my particular idiosyncratic story, but for everyone, that moment to moment, my inclination is towards kindness and compassion and relating to other people in the world that way, out of awareness, both of the level of suffering in the world and the level of heroism in the world that we keep on carrying on in the spite of it, that we're touched, I am, we all are, by people's heroism. When we hear, as we share in the morning, my, my husband, my sister, my father, my mother, uh, my child, uh, it's not ours, but we have a sense of how it might be for this other person, that that particular empathic ability that human beings have makes it possible for us to intuit how other people feel. And uh, just as I feel at the end of when we have talked about who we're thinking about, every single week I more or less say the same thing. I say, you know, by the time we're finished saying who's on our hearts and minds because of this or that or the other, everything that's in me that is frayed or irritable is mollified because nothing is important other than that, you know some little irritation I have with this or that in the world, it disappears in that. It's like for some little period of time, wisdom prevails. And whatever I'm thinking about or whatever has caught me to have a little buzz about becomes ridiculous because I, I momentarily at least, am returned to the first 
statement of the Eightfold Path, which is wise understanding as a possibility. This is how it is in life. Things keep arising and passing away. There was a, 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 um, a cartoon in last week, two weeks ago, in the New Yorker. And alas, I was carrying it around with me and I put it down and left it somewhere. And now I am trying to get it from the cartoon bank at the New Yorker to show you how desire arises over every single thing. Where's my cartoon? I need another one. So now I have to order a framed one. But if I do, I'll hang it in my bathroom where I'll see it every day. I really will because it's important to see it. The cartoon is two people, a man and a woman. Uh, in the, so you understand they're a couple. They're uh, middle-aged, uh, regular-looking couple standing on a city street and what you see in the in the in the bubbles of speech up here is their conversation and he says it's chilly today and she says I don't find it so chilly it's seasonal and he says it but it's colder than usual and she said no it's really not I find it actually quite warm and he said no it's really cold and she said well you know if you had dressed right and worn the right amount of clothing it'd be all right and he said, no, what do you mean? It goes on and on and on and on like this. And I look at that and I say, how much of my life do I get sucked into a conversation on trivia or like a contest about trivia? It's not like this, it's like this, it's like this, it's like this. It's, so, I mean, my, my husband and I both enjoyed it very much. So, and now we have like a little password between us. If somebody says X and somebody says, no, semi-X, we say it's, it's chilly today. You know? <laughs> because it doesn't matter if it's X or semi-X, you know? It's, it's X enough. It's just conversation. It doesn't matter. Is this important? Is this... <laughs> is, this is this worth getting into? And how the mind falls into trivia... I think sometimes, just because it's a habit, it has a habit of passing the time, maybe not to see what's really happening. And so I wanted to talk about how if we see what's really happening, the first two steps of the path are wise understanding what's really happening is everything that's arising is passing away. In the suttas, in the, in the canon, the last thing that the Buddha said, the penultimate statement of his life, is said to have been, everything that arises passes away. He's giving the instructions to his monks around him about how to behave and what to do and what to remember. And then he gives this instruction. He says, everything that arises passes away. It's sometimes presented as transient, are all conditioned things. And then the last line is usually translated as strive on with diligence. Um, my friend uh, Andy Olensky, who's a, really a poly scholar, has a line that I think is preferable. He says, really, you can translate that as move into the future with confidence. And I, I like that better. It has less of that strive on. Move into the future with confidence. So I, I began to think about what do we have to remember? And maybe that trivia stuff keeps us from remembering. And maybe when we mention every week what's going on in our lives, it, at least for a little bit of time, takes away. It says, oh, oh, this, 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 this that I'm thinking about is not what's important. This is what's important. So 
uh, one of the things that I did uh, is the last morning that we were there, I did not take my computer to Costa Rica by design. I really thought I could really have a retreat for myself. And uh, there was a computer in the, um, in the lobby area, in the reception area, as there usually is in hotels. But I decided not to check it the whole week. And I did have my smartphone with me. But it's not smart enough to be able to get email out of the country because I have Sprint, and Sprint doesn't operate out of the country. So I was a week without email. And on the morning at the end of the week when we were leaving to go to the airport and waiting for the van that was going to take 10 people to the airport, I thought, well, I should check the email in case my plane has been changed. You know, I would have gotten an email about that or something that maybe I should know before I go home. So I sit down at the email, and uh, you know, you, lo you think you're logging on, but it lights up, and lo and behold, it's the person before me who's been using the email who has not closed down what she was looking at. So I'm looking at someone else's email. So you, you, first of all, you, you, and it's the messages, it's her inbox. And it's the first line of every message you know how you have in your inbox. And in order to know it wasn't mine, I had to see that what it did say. And the first message was, um, Anna, our mother is dying today. So I thought, well, one of these people here is Anna that's reading this message, that read it already, because here it is up on the email. And I thought a while about... Um, how many people last Saturday in the world were going to get a message like that that said, our mother is dying today, you know? Uh, and that one day we'll all get messages like that if we haven't already gotten them by email or by telephone or something. And I wondered which of these people, because I didn't know an Anna, there were a lot of people there, wondered which of the people it was And whether she was expecting it or not expecting it. or But all of a sudden, it shifts around. I was thinking about, that really is maybe the thing that I want to really think about. If I think about, when we teach this practice, we talk about clear seeing. Do you know the word vipassana? It used to be called vipassana uh, meditation. It's now become, uh, after three decades in the United States, being called mindfulness meditation, and this, it, it's up close. Really, it, the word mindfulness is meant to translate the word vipassana. Vipassana is often translated as um, insight, really seeing deeply into the nature of things. It's different from the insight that we talk about in psychology, where we talk about, I had this insight that I behave all the time with my partner, just the way I used to behave with my older brother, or I had this insight about my psyche. It's really the insight, those are the certainly valid and helpful insights, certainly, to liberate us from habits of relationship that aren't so good for us. But the insights that the Buddha hoped people would realize were primarily the insight of impermanence, that what's here is here only briefly whether it's this breath, or this age, or this experience, or this relationship, or this life. And that that's just the way it is. I remember saying to my teacher, um, Joseph Goldstein, at some point 
decades ago, I was doing some period of practice, and it just seemed to me suddenly so clear that everything was momentary. And um, I, was, I was getting really um, depressed about it. I would see a beautiful flower, and I would think, just opening, and I'd think, well, three days from now, this is going to be gone. And so I said to him, you know, I'm overwhelmed with the business of impermanence. I said, it's so sad. And he said, no, it's not sad. He said, it's just true. Uh, He said, sad is the story that you're telling about it. I would actually go back now and say, there is an element of sadness in it. If I don't want to call it sadness, I'm going to call it poignancy. Because we do love that flower when it's fresh and blooming and our partners when they're well and healthy, and our lives, and our health when they're flourishing. And I think that to the degree that I think about uh, how much, even in a moment of flourishing, this isn't going to last, but not, not holding it in depression, but holding it in the awareness that this is the only time I have today. I can't have today tomorrow. And tomorrow will be finished tomorrow. And if it was one of my teachers at some point said to me, it's your life, Sylvia, don't miss it. Mm-hmm. And I was really very impressed by that. It's one of those things that stayed with me. My mother said that to me once as well. I, I, I had uh, really uh, soft-hearted and quite loving parents. I hardly remember them ever saying anything um, as a rebuke to me. And I was also an only child, so that probably helped a lot. Uh, and I remembered a time in my ad- I remember a time in my adolescence where I was probably having a day of adolescent hormone irritability. And I was, I don't even remember what I was annoyed at and finding fault with. And I was slamming doors. Anybody who's had adolescent children know that slamming doors happens sometimes. And I must have slammed one door too many because I, when I reappeared, my mother said to me in the quietest of voices, she said, you know, Sylvia, you're not going to get to do this day over again. And I thought, oh. <laughs> and she didn't say it in a bad way. But I, that's probably good that she didn't say it in a bad way because I didn't feel rebuked. I felt like that was important information. <laughs> not going to get to do this day over again. It's not to say that I behaved in a sterling way every day in my life. After that, I messed up plenty of days. I still mess up days if I get caught in some... You know, it's temperate, it's not temperate, it's chilly, it's more than chilly. It used to be more chilly, now it's less chilly. And you know, you can fall into that very easily. If you're tired, you didn't sleep enough, you didn't eat enough, you're overwhelmed, you're frightened about anything. All the things that, that cause people to fall into addictive behavior. And talking nonsense is addictive behavior. You know, that, uh... So I started to think all the way home from Costa Rica, I was thinking about... What are the essential, how does this practice relate particularly to keeping that, uh, that piece of wisdom that everything that's here is temporal and there's really nothing to do but cherish it and take care of it and not create suffering in an already vulnerable world? Because everybody is going to be touched by that temporality. Everybody here is vulnerable. I remember uh, somebody who was in this class a number of years ago and was more and more pregnant and uh, 
then wasn't here for a little while. Do you remember that? She, because she had her baby. And then she came back several months later, and we all uh, applauded, knew, nod, and she had the baby with her. And she said, uh, she said, it's great. It's wonderful, everybody. Congratulate her. She said, it's great. She said, nobody told me, though. When I got pregnant, everybody hurrayed. And when I had the baby, everybody hurrayed. Nobody told me that I had just mortgaged my heart for the whole rest of my life, you know? And that after this, you, you know, you're held hostage by somebody else's well-being. Be, you know, that nobody tells you, keep in mind. <laughs> and, and we want to take that on. We wouldn't miss it if we had an opportunity. We hope to be able to make those kinds of relationships with a child, with a partner, with a lover, with a parent, with a spouse, with anything. And then we miss it because we'll be separated from it. And so the, I think that the insight that is part of wise understanding and wise aspiration was, is how can I so free my mind, if not permanently, at least catch it in the act of becoming confused by greed or hatred or delusion so that I remember that it so it stays up. So I was thinking about the, the idea of training your mind to see what's true, which is, I think, what happens from Dharma practice, whether it happens on retreat, whether it happens by having Dharma buddies or reading books or coming here frequently and hearing the Dharma over and over again. Earlier, I was, I, I was playfully saying that there's only one Dharma talk. We can get confused, we do, or we can see through the confusion, restore clear understanding. In the out of that clear understanding, there's nothing but suffering and heroism and beauty, which is what holds up the mind under all of this. And so there's nothing to do but relate in kindness and compassion. And that holds us up. So I'll talk a little bit about the training the mind. I went out on a bird watching trip one morning. That's what you do when you're in Costa Rica. They say, okay, you can sign up for this. And you leave at 6 o'clock in the morning. And 6.30, you're a half hour away and sitting in a flat bottom boat with 12 people in it, close to each other, everybody with binoculars and a naturalist and you push off and two seconds out from the push off people say look at that see that something 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 up in that tree <laughs> so I, I all i see is a jungle i don't see anything something. so they say it's right there in the second tree from the this one you see that one with the flowers it's the second tree over from that the third branch up there's two knot holes after the second knot hole, and then you're orienting yourself by the other. Oh, it just left. Okay, but look at that. <laughs> or there's something else over there. And, uh, and people, people ride very reverentially in these, you know, because it's a church for people who watch because they're struck with awe oh, about look what's going on. When we came in at the end, it was great. I did see some style, you know, the big great blue heron, I could see that great blue heron. That <laughs> stood there for a while, and the egrets, I could see an egret that was big enough. I saw the iguana uh, lying along a branch, but it's hard to see an iguana because they're the same color as the branch, and they're kind of gnarly also. And as they see, it's right there, right there, right there, and then you see it, and it doesn't move at all, it's just right there. <laughs> And finally, okay, now I see the iguana. 
So when we came in, this naturalist who takes these trips out every day uh, said, you know, the most that anybody ever saw on one trip in the morning, he said, because sometimes people come who are very knowledgeable, is 51 species of bird and animal. He said, this morning we saw about 25. They saw about 25. <laughs> uh, yeah, I saw maybe 10, counting those big, big birds. <laughs> and, you know, it was interesting because I, I was thrilled that other people knew how to do that. Because I thought to myself, you know, you can train. The people weren't born knowing that. They trained to be able to do it because that's what they wanted to be able to see. And I thought, well, I hope we go back again and I'll be a little bit, or I'll go someplace else and I'll bring binoculars and maybe I'll learn a little bit but, because I'd like to know that. But to train to see. I watched the Super Bowl on Sunday and there was some amazing pass running of people running with the ball and then they show you after the play from above, in the above picture, and they say, so-and-so, he could see where there was a hole through the defensive line and run right through it. And as you're watching it, you don't see it, but he sees it, and you see, because he's trained to see that. The quarterback is trained to see where that person is going to be by the time that the ball gets there, and it's an incredible piece of artistry for it to match. Did you watch? Anybody watch? Halftime Madonna. I did. <laughs> I did watch that. Um, it was fabulous. It was. The whole thing is, it's an amazing thing to know so many millions of people are watching. I was thinking about that whole thing, about who trains the mind and what would we really see. There was a, an article that came through the email this week on the, on the Huffington Post. I meant to bring it, and I think I didn't. Um, written by a hospice nurse that, uh, who has about her last 12 years working in hospice and talking about um, the five things that people most regret as they're dying. And uh, people, uh, not surprisingly, often regretted that they'd spent so much time working to, it's mostly men uh, of an older generation than men like myself, from a time where uh, that was the man's role. Men who said, you know, I wish I had spent more time with my children when they were growing up, or more time with my wife when my children were little. And People lamented uh, not speaking out more and saying what it was that they felt or wanted. Uh, one of the five was, I wish I'd kept up with more of my friends. And I really feel uh, uh, more and more, I've, I, I think I've always felt, uh, but more and more, that my friends are the, a very pe big piece of my spiritual life. Uh, years and years ago, I was um, introduced to a woman who, it was at the time of the um, involvement of the United States in Nicaragua and people working for the 
what I thought was a just, just cause. And I was talking to this woman who had done incredible things in working. Uh, and I said to her, uh, against apparently insurmountable odds and discouragements, and I said, how do you keep going when you're discouraged and the causes that you support uh, don't, don't prevail? And she didn't stop for a minute. She said, I talked to my friends. And I think, you know, if we have a few friends in the world to whom we can talk, to say, this is on my mind and this is what I care about. Um, to my friends is an important spiritual practice. You probably all know the line from uh, uh, Ananda saying to the Buddha, is it true that noble friends are half of the holy life? And the Buddha saying, no, it's not true. They're the whole of the holy life. And I, I, I think so much about that. Uh, not everybody needs to be a Buddhist. Not everybody needs to uh, practice in the same way that I do or go to the same places that I do. But they have to talk about not uh, about what are we going to do in these temporal lives, coming and going? How are we going to hold each other up? We are all going to see each other out of this world one way or another. That, that line, Anna, uh, our mother is dying today. And how many people on Saturday got that email? So I thought really about practice being... How will I see past the stories I tell myself about uh, I, I can get hooked on this or hooked on that story, I don't like this or I don't like that or this one did this or this one did that. How can I have really the kind of open heart that dispels those clouds of confusion? Because fundamentally, I think it's a relaxed and open heart that sees through the confusion, is able to say, I'm bereaved. I'm in the middle of being bereaved. I'm, and I am bereaved this minute. I'm in the middle of bereaved, or I'm just bereaved. And how to somehow stay afloat during that time. I read a novel by Anne Patchett called Bel Canto. Did you read that? Yeah, how many people read that? Everybody read it but me, seems like. <laughs> I read it the other day. I read it. I brought it on my Kindle today. I read it. Uh, I read it from one day to the next because I was so riveted by it. And really, it's a story. It's not. It, it is a mythical story, but it's a mythical story based on a real event. Some years prior to Anne Patchett's writing this, uh, uh, an embassy was uh, taken over in Lima, Peru. And uh, the people who were there were held hostage for some period of time. Uh, this is a story that mirrors that about in an unknown country, in an unnamed capital city, uh, at a dinner party at the home of the vice president of the country, uh, some rebel group enters into the building through the air conditioning and takes over the building and as it wanted to take the president hostage, the president was not there because he was home watching soap operas. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so they were, they were, they were at a, a, what to do? Now they've got all these hostages. 
no president. They can't make any the same kinds of demands. So the book is what happens in the next four and a half mythical months, where um, with the liaison of a Red Cross representative, they keep getting uh, material, food and other things that they need, and they are negotiating for how it's going to get out and what's going to happen. And before the final denouement, they're trying to work it out, negotiating. And, uh, and at the very beginning, everyone, all the women are let go, except for two women who aren't recognized as women because they're men who have dressed themselves as boys and are part of this uh, rebel insurgency. And the woman who was uh, the guest of honor at that party that was raided, who's an opera singer. And the, this party is held in this mythical place at the behest of a, of a Japanese businessman who's apparently extremely wealthy and can host a party like that and can host bringing this soprano from someplace mythical as well, in Europe, I think is clear, to sing at that party. And she sings, and just after she sings is when the hostage-taking happens. And then the next four and a half months unfold. And what happens during that time is everyone who's at, at gunpoint and terrified in the beginning, time passes and people begin to recognize each other and people begin to relate to each other in a more um, relaxed way. And by and by, uh, the terrorist uh, general is playing chess with uh, Mr. Mr. Hayakawa, or whatever his name is. And by and by, uh, the one person who speaks many languages is being the uh, go-between between all these people who can talk to each other. And the soprano, who is distressed because she can't practice, says one of the negotiating needs is you have to bring me music. And it turns out that there's a music store in this mythical capital that supplies her with all of this extraordinary opera music. With, and it turns out that one of the people who, are the, who is there in that group, although her accompanist dies in the original attack, is an accomplished pianist. So every day she is singing all day, they're listening to the singing, and all of these people who are enemies, so to speak, are sitting and listening to the singing together. And by and by, they fall in love with each other, and a couple of people begin to have love affairs with each other in the night. Improbably, because they can't speak the same language. So they have to teach each other a few words so that they can have these love affairs. And it's extremely touching. But the part that I want to end, the part that I wanted to read to you, let's see if it comes up. Uh, <coughs> As a part about, in order for people who think that they are estranged from other people, I am one of the guests, he is a terrorist, she is an insurgent, uh, I am a, a cultured person who went to university, this person can't write her name. In order for everybody to fall in love with each other, you have to forget all the stories that keep you in separate categories. And this is, a, um, this is about Gen who was the polyglot, the person uh, who had studied all of these words and all of these languages and that was interpreting. 
He said these last months had turned him around, and now Gen saw that you could, there was, could be as much virtue in letting go of what you knew as there had ever been in gathering new information. He worked as hard at forgetting as he had ever worked to learn. He managed to forget that Carmen, the woman that he's having a love affair with, was a soldier in the terrorist organization that had kidnapped him. That was not an easy task. Every day he forced himself to practice until he could look at, whoops, push the wrong button, until he could look at um, Carmen and only see the woman he loved. He forgot about the future and past. He forgot about his country, his work, and what would become of him when all of this was over. He forgot that the way he lived now would ever be over. And Gen wasn't the only one. Carmen forgot, too. She did not remember her direct orders to form no emotional bonds to the hostages. When she found it was a struggle to let such important knowledge slip from her memory, the other soldiers helped her forget. Ishmael forgot because he wanted to be the other son of Ruben Iglesias and an employee of Oscar Mendoza. He could picture himself sharing a bedroom with Ruben's son, Marco. He's been adopted, or he's going to be adopted, and being a helpful older brother to the boy. Cesar forgot because Roxanne Cos had said he could come with her to Milan and learn to sing. How easy it was to imagine himself on a stage with her, a rain of tender blossoms pouring down on their feet. The generals helped him forget by turning a blind eye to all the affection and slackness that surrounded them, and they could do that because they themselves were forgetting. They had to forget that they had been the ones to recruit these young people from their families by promising them work and opportunity and a cause to fight for. They had to forget that the president of the country had neglected to attend the party from which they had so, from which they had so elaborately planned to kidnap him, and so they changed their plans and took everyone else hostage. Mostly, they had to forget that they had not come up with a way to leave. They had to think that one might present itself if they waited long enough. Why should they think about the future? No one else seemed to remember it. Father Aguedas refused to think about it. Everyone came to Sunday Mass. He performed the sacraments, communion, confession, even last rites. He had put the souls in this house in order, and that was the only thing that mattered. So why should anyone think about the future? The future never occurred to Roxanne. She had become so proficient at forgetting that she never considered the wife of her lover anymore. She was not concerned that he ran a corporation in Japan or that they did not speak the same language. Even the ones who had no real reason to forget had done so. They lived their lives only for the hour that lay ahead of them. Lothar thought only of running around the house. Victor thought nothing but of playing cards with his friends and gossiping about how they loved Roxanne. Tetsuya Kato thought of his responsibilities as a companionist and forgot everything else. It was too much work to remember things. Everyone forgot except Simon, who even in his sleep thought of nothing but his wife at home. It's very, very touching, and I thought to myself, maybe that line, which I thought at the time, I really want to read that, is somehow the clue that in order for at any moment for my mind to readjust itself to what would be clear seeing, it has to forget whatever it got captured by. Someone says something to me, it's a little bit offensive. Somebody does something. I, I go to the pharmacy to pick up something 
and it's not ready. And uh, they said it would be. Uh, and I almost have annoyance arise in my mind. I have to forget that they said it would be there. It's not there. That's all. Only in this moment, it's not there. And to forget the possibility. That little movement of the mind, somebody said it to me the other day. They said, what I'm beginning to see in my mind is a little bit of space in between something happens. I know it happened. I know whether I like it or I don't like it. I definitely know whether I don't like it. Like I'm at the pharmacy or more, any of those kinds of things. It's, it's too crowded on the freeway. It's this, it's that. I know what's happening. I know how I feel about it. And there's like a moment where my mind could cringe itself in the affect that it almost felt like, ugh, what's happening? And in between realizing it, knowing it, and ugh, arising in the mind, which is unpleasant, I decide I'm not doing that. I'm forgetting it. I'm just taking a pass on this one. You know, uh, the one other piece of that list of the five things that um, people said that they regretted is they said, I regret that I didn't realize uh, often enough that happiness is a choice. That's really a very, very big awareness. That happiness is a choice. That stuff happens to you. Stuff happens to everybody. And we're not always pleased. But to be able, in the middle of it, to say, stuff is happening to me. I'm, it's, it's not, this, is not, this is a hard time in my life. It's not pleasant. But it's okay. It's okay. That kind of happiness. There isn't a good word in English for happiness. You know, it's not, um, it's maybe closer con to contentment. It's definitely, happiness do definitely doesn't mean joy. Sometimes it means joy, or it's a component of joy. Um, but I think it's the mind not having a problem with anything. You know, that say, okay, that's okay. But not in an indifferent way, or, you know, whatever. But in a, in a way that, uh, uh, maybe, maybe the right word is in a way that's filled with compassion. You know, it's like this. And how moving it is, and how poignant it is. All over the place, there are people who are getting emails and said, Anna, our mothers are dying today, in one way or another. <clears throat> you have to know what to look for. Someone sent me the story the other day on the internet. Uh, I don't know what we would do without all these, everybody sending you little stories. And this is apparently an old story. I, hadn't, I, I think maybe I heard it before, because it happened a year ago. You know about the, the musician playing on the subway station? Yeah. Yeah. It was Joshua Bell. So who doesn't know about the musician? Not so many. About a year ago, on a morning in New York, a man dressed kind of like a street person or in ordinary clothing, not ragged, uh, but ordinary clothing, played his violin on a, on a train station platform in New York City and for 45 minutes was filmed by a, a hidden camera. Nobody stopped. One, you know, a few people turned around for a minute 
and then looked at their watch and realized they were late and left. And one three-year-old boy, really tugging at his mother's hand, wanted to watch, but the mother you know, pulled him away. And at the end of 45 minutes, there were $32 in his cap that people had put as gifts for him. And the violinist was Joshua Bell, who's one of the foremost violinists in the world today. He was playing a Stradivarius violin, and he was playing some of the most difficult passages in the violin repertory. And the following night, he played in uh, the Symphony Hall in Boston to a sold-out audience who had all paid more than $100 a seat to get in there. But nobody knew to listen. I told it to a friend of mine who uh, just the other morning, just after I'd gotten the email, and uh, she said, you know, I said, uh, I, I said, uh, uh, if um, uh, Michael Tilson Thomas had gotten off the train, he would have stopped. <laughs> you know, he would have recognized that something was going on. My friend is a cellist with the San Francisco Symphony. She said anybody who was a music student really would have stopped. Anyone who was a violin student would have stopped. You need to have a little bit to know what to look for. So I was thinking again, and it comes around to ending where we started, that uh, like the bird watching, someone shows you, aha, uh -huh, you could see a little bit more. You know, I don't feel lament that I didn't see them. I thought it was, I thought it was sweet. I thought probably if I devoted myself to that, I could see a little better. Uh, but the whole idea, uh, I can enjoy the fact that other people are very trained seers of birds because they have tremendous pleasure from it. And other people uh, are very trained uh, ball carriers in football so they can see the space in between the people. And I can applaud them for that kind of vision or the vision that throws the ball and has it caught 40 yards away. And it's a, it's a, that's a kind of seeing that I have not cultivated in this lifetime, and that's okay. That's not what I wanted to do. But I want to cultivate the vision that remembers that this is the only day I'm ever going to have that's today. And that if I'm ever going to train my mind to responding with kindness and compassion, it has to happen today, anytime. It's always today. And we keep having... Uh, we keep having uh, reminders. We remind each other every week about there's only now, look what's happening, look what's happening. Um, you know, I think so much about when we say you know, what's happening that uh, everything, is, uh, everything that's special, that uh, Morton being in this time of transition is special. Uh, Claire, having fallen in love at 75 with someone who's 80-something. And it's, it's special, you know, that it's, it's so, um, it's such a special thing to have somebody dear to you, whatever age we are and whenever we lose them. When we fall in love and when we're abandoned in our love with somebody, it's just a, a, such a vulnerable thing for people to have to do. 
I always have the feeling when I'm thinking about it that um, everyone should, uh, what it does to my mind, as I said earlier, is it, uh, it, it screens out any mumbling and irritability because it's worthless, that stuff. It's cool, it's not cool. And I, I often think of the feeling that uh, I have when I go to visit someone in the hospital and you walk down a hospital corridor and you see all those rooms either side and you look in the room and you think, I don't know the people in the room there, but there's a person in the bed and people around them and a person in the bed and people around them. And whoever they are, there's somebody that's significant to the people around them. And when you go down such a hallway, you keep your voice down and you don't, it, it automatically lowers your voice. You realize that you're somehow in a holy place. It's a vulnerable and a holy place where the only thing that's present is people who are feeling concern and love and compassion and um, all the feelings that you feel around possibly losing someone who's dear to you. Where was that piece of paper that, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say uh, when we were, my family was in Yellowstone, people were calling that animal eyes. Uh, animal eyes. Yeah, yeah. Because they really look. They and see the iguana or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have to be really tuned to to be able to look and and to notice <coughs> and to and to have it respond in you in the way that it would. It would not cause pain to you or to the other person. You know, that, uh, this is, uh, can I read this? Is that all right? Of course. Susan Bart brought the, uh, the, the paper that's taped to the door of Morton's bedroom because people are coming to visit. And uh, these are instructions written by Mijo, who's uh, her, our long-term friend. And... Uh, has experience with being with people dying. At the end of life, one has little energy left. Noises and brusque movements are jarring. Slow down. Take a few breaths, then enter, open the door slowly. Enter Morton's room, stepping in quietly. Sit down. Do not stand up looking down at Morton. If you touch him, be gentle. Speak in a soft voice. Silence is okay. If he's asleep, meditate and send him blessings or metta. Maybe that's a story for the whole life. It's not that we should go around quietly. We should go around thoughtfully. You know? Sometimes we, can, I mean, sometimes we laugh out loud and embrace people and hug them and touch them. And it's the right time to do that. And sometimes it's, this is the right time. I think it's always the right time for me to, to, to think to myself, what will I do to keep on seeing clearly what is actually fundamentally true? That, that truth about, um, the truth about the transient nature of experience and of any tiny experience and of life, so that I remember not to get caught in it's chilly, it's not so chilly. You know? That's not what's real. 
the end of it, I, 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 want, I don't want to, I don't, if I look back and I think I spent too much time with it's chilly and it's not chilly, I'll feel bad. On the way to the end, I'll feel bad if I spend too much time. I won't see you for a little, I think I won't see you for a little while. When am I here again? Does anybody know? <laughs> the last Wednesday. The last Wednesday, okay. Of this month, not next week though. No. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have to check and see. So week after next. Uh, I, so I wish you everything good. Um, let's just sit for a minute quietly. May the intention that we bring to being here together as a community, thinking about what animates life, what supports the mind, from its beginning to its end, May we take with us into the world that, that conviction to loving, that loving connection is what supports us. And may all of the connections we have with other people be lovingly supported for their benefit, for our benefit, for the benefit of everyone we all meet, for the benefit of our communities and for the benefit of all beings everywhere. If you haven't been here before, welcome, welcome. Come back, come back. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.